So please turn with me to Mark 13, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 37, Mark 13. This is where we will behold and contemplate, consider the beauty and the wonder of God in his word this morning, Mark 13. So probably familiar with this passage and its parallel accounts like Matthew 24, 1 through 51, being called the Olivet Discourse, referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And we're taking this all at once because this is Jesus' one long answer to what, on the surface, may seem like a fairly straightforward question. It's a complex and layered passage. There are different ways this passage is interpreted. Uh, It really kind of revolves around this idea. Is Jesus speaking a prophecy here that was historically fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD? Or is Jesus primarily speaking about what will be fulfilled in the end times? Is this a is this a, a historical fulfill, historically fulfilled prophecy, or is this an eschatological prophecy? That is a prophecy that has to do with the end times. My answer would simply be yes. This passage should be understood, and many do understand it this way as both historical. That is, it has been fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, but it is also pointing to something that is yet to come. The old covenant age has given way to the new covenant age. The ruler of Satan has been disarmed, and Jesus reigns on the throne in heaven. We live in God's kingdom now, yet at the same time, we await the fullness of God's kingdom. Jesus is also pointing to a fuller future fulfillment. Not only has the old covenant age passed away, but this present earthly age will pass away. Sin, death, and Satan will be completely defeated. And God's kingdom will come when Jesus returns to reign in the new heavens and new earth. We will see this in our passage. My hope is that we see that Jesus' prophecy here, this passage, fits within the prophetic pattern of redemptive history that we see in Scripture. We think of things like the Exodus, these events that fulfilled God's word truly, or the return of the exiles from Babylon, fulfilled God's word truly. But we know that even the Exodus and the return from exile also point to a greater reality that we experience in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his Return. So I hope we see that this fits that pattern. And finally, I also hope that we see what King Jesus' primary concern for his people is in the midst of all of these layers. It will be a passage that uh, this sermon will have a little bit more teaching and even some history brought into it. But, but what we see at the center of it is that this all centers on the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love for us and what he wants us to know in the midst of these things. So I pray that we're moved to worship and thanksgiving in the midst of this. So let's consider some uh, context briefly. Jesus in Mark Mark is the son of God, the son of man, the, the promised Messiah. 
That's what Mark is showing us. He stepped into the world to bring in and usher in God's kingdom. Most recently, we've seen him in Jerusalem as the Messiah. And he's been to the temple on occasions. And the second time he went to the temple, if you recall, he flipped over tables and drove out the money changers. And this was framed by his cursing of the fig tree. And we said then that this is pointing to the reality that, that judgment and curse awaits Israel, Jerusalem, for their unfaithfulness. This brings us to our passage. We see Jesus leaving the temple for the last time. Let's keep that in mind. He is leaving the temple for the last time. And he will explain more fully the judgment that awaits Jerusalem that the fig tree and his actions in the temple pointed to. Fittingly, though, after Mark 13, we see Mark accelerate the events to the surround, that, that surround the crucifixion. And so we also know that this points to the cross. Look at our passage, Mark 13. We will consider this passage in three parts. Uh, part 1, verses 1 through 2, we see the fall of the temple. Part 2, verses 3 through 4, we see the question, when? When is the end of the age and the coming of the king? And in part 3, the big portion of our passage, verses 5 through 37, we see the answer, what? What is the end of the age and the coming of the king, and what should you do in light of it? So we have the fall of the temple, the question, and the answer. Look with me at... Part 1, verses 1 through 2, the fall of the temple. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus and his disciples are are leaving the temple. Why is this significant? Well, of course, we know, as we just touched on, this is the last time he will be in the temple, and then we'll be moving into the final portion, the final days of his life, all the events that surround the crucifixion, the plot to kill him, the Last Supper, his betrayal, his crucifixion. So this is important movement for the story, but... It also has some theological significance. What is the temple? Well, in many ways, it's the culmination, the embodiment of of the old covenant, of the law. The temple is where God's presence dwells among his people. And and this is perhaps the source of wonder for the disciple here, marveling at this wonderful temple that points to this great reality. At least we had hoped it's not simply architectural wonder, right? But Jesus sees something different. He sees something that's passing away. Remember how the Gospel of John describes the incarnation. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt. That, that, That word is tabernacled or intended among us. It's this idea that Jesus is the very presence and glory of God. He is the temple. And Jesus says so himself, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. So here we see Jesus, the true temple, God's presence, leaving the temple for the very last time. God's presence, no longer in the temple, leaving. Jesus, the very presence of God, walks out of the temple. And he announces, this temple will fall. There will not 
be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this true reality points to a greater reality that Jesus, the present tabernacle, the true temple, will be crucified in order to usher in a new age. Jesus sees the old covenant age giving way to a new covenant age. He sees the present earthly age giving way to new heavens and new earth. Now, naturally, Jesus' words here would perplex his disciples and pique their interest. And so they have a question. Let's go to part two, verses three through four. The question, when? When is the end of the age and the coming of the king? And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were asking, asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they're, they're on the Mount of Olives. That's where we get the, 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 the title, Olivet Discourse here. And, and from where they are, they can look across the, the Kidron Valley and see the temple. So they're probably looking right at the temple. And the disciples ask what amounts to two questions. When will this happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Well, what are all these things? Well, the parallel account in Matthew 24, 3 tells us this. Tell, they, they ask it this way. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So they see here the coming and the end of the age is together here in Mark. So essentially, they're, they're asking two questions that, that, are, that are connected here, and Jesus will answer their questions. They ask when and what is the sign for this coming and the end of the age. Well, you see, for the disciples and, and the Jewish perspective, all, all, of, all of these events were really a package deal, right? They're one event connected together. When the temple falls, the Son of Man comes, the age ends, boom, kingdom of God is here. And, and so really, both their questions revolve around one thing, when. When is this going to happen? The only reason they want to sign is so that they know when. When is the kingdom coming? When will you rule? When will the kingdom be restored to Israel and us with you? So it's one big event. They want to know when, but Jesus' answer will point to a different reality than what they have in mind. Jesus' answer, a prophecy, points to a true but partial fulfillment of what they'll experience, but also a fuller future fulfillment, a now and not yet reality of the kingdom of God coming. And this is, this is just the nature of biblical prophecy, as we've noted. Uh, we've, we said the exodus was truly fulfilling God's words, but also pointed to a greater exodus that we experience in the gospel. Uh, and a passage we heard this morning talking about the return from exile, Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 4. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God and your children and obey his voice in all that I commanded you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you, even, even if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, the Lord your God will gather you and take you. This truly was fulfilled historically in the return from exile, but it also pointed to, and even as Deuteronomy will go on, a greater reality, a greater gospel reality that awaits 
God gathering his people. So this fits with the pattern of Scripture. It's, it's uh, been illustrated this way before, um, uh, and, and I even experienced this myself. One time I was driving with one of my best friends in, in Colorado, and in the distance we saw just this huge mountain. And, you know, if you've been to the Rockies, it's a massive mountain. But as we got closer, we realized, oh, wait, that's not actually one mountain. There, there's two mountains there. There's one right behind it, right, right next to it. But then as we got closer, we realized, well, wait, those two mountains aren't even close to each other at all. They're separated by miles, right? This is kind of the nature, an illustration of what we see with this type of partial and future fulfillment. What looks like on the horizon of prophecy, one big event in reality, turns out to be separated events over thousands of years. And we see that here. So what Jesus prophesies is an event that the disciples will witness and experience truly in history with his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus said the temple will fall. The disciples asked when, and Jesus tells them. But... Their experience also proves to be a partial reality that points to a future fulfillment. So let's consider Jesus' answer to their question, when? Verses 5 through 37, the answer to their question. So we'll consider Jesus' answer here in, in two parts. First, the end of the age in verses 5 through 23. And then, the coming of the king in verses 24 through 37. The end of the age, verses 5 through 23, and the coming of the king in verses 24 through 37. First look with me at verses 5 through 23, the end of the age. And and we'll take this even in chunks. We have a big passage, so we're going to have to take it in chunks. If you're a note taker, here we will focus on three main ideas. Gospel deception in times of turmoil. Gospel deception in times of turmoil. Second, we will see promised gospel proliferation or spreading in times of persecution. Promised gospel proliferation in times of persecution. And then thirdly, we will see abomination in times of tribulation. Abomination in times of tribulation. First look with me, verses 5 through 8, gospel deception in times of turmoil. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So remember, the disciples asked when. And what is the first thing Jesus says to them? Does he answer their question immediately? No. The first thing Jesus says to them in verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. This is going to set the tone for what Jesus is is going to, what's going to end up stringing its way, the golden thread that's going to run through all of these, uh, this entire passage. The Greek word here for see is this idea of beware, watch out. 
We'll see it show up earlier in, uh, later in verses 9, 23, and 33. There we translate it as, be on your guard. What are they to watch out for? Gospel deception. False gospel. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now, the context of this deception is times of turmoil, wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, earthquakes, famine. What does this tell us? Times of uncertainty and turmoil, upheaval, breed false gospel. Jesus may be, may be talking to his disciples here, but this word speaks to us as well. Our faith, your faith, is never more vulnerable, never, more, never are we more susceptible to, to false teaching than in times of upheaval, whether personal or global. There will be many who come in those times and offer a false version, a twisted version of the gospel, or co-opt the gospel for a solution to these problems. Who will be seen as a savior. Don't be deceived. We see, we saw this happen even recently, didn't we? With, with COVID, there was this great upheaval. And, and in the testimony of many pastors I've talked to and other, other leaders in, in members of churches, many did not come back, right? Many left the church and did not come back. So the disciples will personally experience many of these things. We know from Acts of a great famine. We know of earthquakes. And historically, we even know that a great earthquake in 60 AD wiped out many cities, including Colossae. In the time leading up to the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, was one of great political unrest, rebellions, of wars. That's what, you know, the handmaiden of history tells us. But, but notice what Jesus tells them. This is not the end. Just because these things are happening does not mean that I've returned. Others will come to you and say, I'm he, I'm the Christ, I'm back. This is not the end, it's just the beginning. It is real pain, but it is birth pains. Jesus is saying, don't be alarmed by the turmoil and don't be deceived by those who say I've returned. Keep the faith. This pain is indeed real, but it is not leading to death. It is leading to life. The same for you and me again. The turmoil and pain that we so often experience that, that, that we think is leading to our death. God is using that to lead to life. So next, look at verses 9 through 13. Here we see promised gospel proliferation in times of persecution. Jesus says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end 
will be saved. So here Jesus repeats his first warning, be on your guard. Guard your faith. Why? Because they will persecute you on account of me. They will hate you. Who will persecute the disciples? Who will hate them? Everyone. The Jews, they go before councils and beaten in synagogues. The Gentiles or nations, they go before governors and kings to testify, even their own families. They will be hated and they will be persecuted and they will be killed. Just as Jesus was. It's no different for his followers. You only need to read a little bit of Acts to see this play out in their lives, right? So Jesus warns them to be on their guard and says, don't lose faith in the midst of persecution because it goes hand in hand with something else. What does Jesus promise in the midst of this persecution? The gospel will spread. The persecution will actually lead to a proliferation of the gospel. We, we just heard read that, that uh, Jesus ascending said, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we know in Acts 8, 1, what? There came a great persecution that scattered the believers throughout Judea and Samaria. The promise of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit, as we see here, will empower you to witness in the midst of the persecution of the gospel. Therefore, guard your faith and endure because it is worth it. You will be saved, but also your witness in the midst of persecution will lead to the salvation of others. This again implies that the end is not yet, even in the midst of persecution. So Jesus hasn't got quite got around to answering the disciples' question yet, right? They asked when, but he, he keeps telling them, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, but the end is not yet. But beginning here in uh, verse 14, we see Jesus begin to address the question at hand. When the temple will fall, when the end of the age, when is your coming, what is the sign? And here we will see... The, the blend of both historical fulfilled prophecy and, and yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies as we look at verse 14 through 22, abomination in times of tribulation. So look at verses 14 through 22. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will, be such a tribu- there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So what is the abomination of desolation? Let's not bury the lead, right? This phrase comes from a prophecy in the book of Daniel. We see it a few times in Daniel, but particularly consider Daniel 11.31. 
Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So the consensus on this prophecy in Daniel is that it was fulfilled in 168-67 BC by the Greek ruler of the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes. When he invaded Jerusalem, slaughtered a pig on the altar of the temple, and sprinkled blood and the broth of the pig all around the grounds, intentionally defying, uh, defiling the temple, and then perhaps even set up an idol of Zeus over the altar. The abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. And, and, and so when it, this left an, an indelible imprint on the Jewish mind. And so when, when Jews read or heard this term, abomination of desolation, this is what came to their mind. I, I think I had one pastor describe it as the equivalent to us hearing the term 9-11. Instant things come to, your, to our minds. That's what this little editorial note is getting at here. Let the reader understand. When you see something like this happen, when you see something like what Antiochus did, run. And that's Jesus' instruction here. Every instruction Jesus gives is to make haste. Jesus says, if, if you see this and, and you're on the roof of your house, don't come down. And we might think, what is he talking about? Well, you think of the houses in ancient Jerusalem at this time, flat roofs. People often did their work on, on the rooftops. And these houses were close together. And what you essentially had was an elevated highway. Run across the rooftops of the houses, get to the wall, and get out. If you're working in the field, don't come back to your house to pack. And we all know how hard it is to travel with children. And so even here, woe to the mothers with children. They face particular adversity. If it's winter, it makes travel difficult. Everything here has to do with haste. The command is get out as fast as you can. Why? Because great tribulation is coming. So the most uh, recognized historical uh, recognized historical fulfillment of this abomination of desolation was the siege of Jerusalem by Roman armies led by Titus in 66 to 70 A.D. This culminated in the raising of Roman standards with the idolatrous images of Caesar and, and the Roman eagle above the altar of the temple where they offered sacrifices. In fact, the parallel account in Luke 21.20 identifies the abomination as this. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So the Jewish historian Josephus was an eyewitness to this siege of Jerusalem, this great tribulation that happened in 70. 66 to 70 AD, and he wrote of murders, executions, starvation, cannibalism. A few highlights. He noted that there were so many crucifixions. We're talking about 66 to 70 AD here, what the disciples would have been witness to. There are so many crucifixions that there wasn't enough crosses for bodies and there wasn't enough space for the crosses. He observed that the entire population within the city, which had swelled because of the Passover season, was killed or enslaved. 1.1 million dead, 100,000 enslaved. 
Joseph sums up the event in this way. The afflictions which befell the Jews were the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in, manner, but in a manner of those wherein cities have fought against cities or nations against nations. It appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to those of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. This was a prophecy that was historically fulfilled. History tells us, too, that Christians in Jerusalem heeded, God, heeded Jesus' words. When they saw the armies of Titus and the Roman armies surround Jerusalem, they fled. They, were, they fled specifically to the, to the mountain town of Pella. Some scholars note that by all accounts, no Christian died in the siege of Jerusalem because they heeded Jesus' warning when they saw the abomination of desolation come near. So this was a historical event that, that fulfilled Jesus' words, Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. But we also can't read Jesus' words here without thinking of future fulfillment. In, in Mark, Jesus has an individual in mind too, not just an event. He says the abomination of desolation will be standing where he ought not to be. And we can't read about the great tribulation without thinking of the great multitude in Revelation 7 that John sees coming from out of the great tribulation from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. And we can't help but read about these false signs and wonders and false Christs and false prophets and think of them tied to the false prophet and the beast we see in Revelation 11 and 13 or the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 all of whom come before the final day of the Lord. So, too, this points to a future fulfillment. And Jesus notes that God would preserve his, preserve his elect by cutting the tribulation short. And in the midst of all this tribulation, the final warning that Jesus gives again is, watch out, be on your guard, do not be deceived by a false gospel. So even in this event, the final end is not yet. Even if this is the end of the temple age, the old covenant age, it becomes clear in the final half of this passage that there is more to come. Look with me at the second half of Jesus' answer in verses 24 through 37, the coming of the king. Here we will first look at verses 24 uh, through 27. The coming of the king is now and not yet. And then we will see verses 28 through 37. The coming of the king is near, sure, and unknowable. So we're dividing this one up too. Verses 24 through 27. The coming of the king is now and not yet. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the, to the heaven, ends of heaven. So even though Jesus moves on to talk about the coming of the Son of Man, keep in mind that, that this is still regarding answering the question of the disciples uh, uh, wanting to know when and the sign. So this is an extension that blends with with his answer about the abomination of desolation. So we must 
see this part of Jesus' answer in two ways, both historical and future. So this is a fulfilled historical reality in the fall of the temple in that this language here is symbolic and metaphorical of the fall of the temple. The change from the old covenant to the new covenant age is, is, is one that will change history. It's a changing of the powers. The, the, the gravity of such a cosmic ship is captured, captured by the metaphorical cosmic language of judgment that we see show up elsewhere in scripture, like Isaiah 13, when judgment's being pronounced on Babylon, the language of the sun, moon, and the stars. It's typical for this kind of language, God's judgment on the nations. And the disciples, they witnessed in the falling of Jerusalem in the temple, symbolically the culmination of Jesus' ascension, which they did witness literally with their own eyes. They saw the Son of Man ascend in clouds, receiving power and authority, and sitting at God's right hand to reign over all the earth. Satan and his rule had ended before their very eyes, and the new covenant age at Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension began right before their eyes. They saw him receive all authority and dominion. They've seen the coming of the Son of Man. And now he is gathering his people through the supernatural act of gospel proclamation in local churches across the globe With angelic aid, and the last, this fits with the last thing he told his disciples, Matthew 28, uh, 28, 18 through 19. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So this event, the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, truly fulfills what Jesus tells his disciples. They've witnessed it. They've witnessed a changing of the ages, but it also points to a future reality. What the disciples witnessed in real time, what we live in and experience today, the rule of Jesus' reign over the earth from heaven. We also know that the fullness of his kingdom is still to come. 2 Peter 3.10, as we heard read this morning, the day of the Lord, the heavens and the earth will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved before the final day of the Lord, when Christ comes with the new heavens and new earth and gathers all his people at his second coming. So this is not just talking about the end of the old covenant age and going to the new covenant age when the Son of Man comes into power, but it's also talking about the end of the present earthly age, moving into the new heavens and the new earth. It's a now and not yet reality. And all of this was won by Jesus' death on the cross. The temple falls. It's simply, when they witness the physical temple fall, it's simply a reminder that the true earthly, the true temple of God has fallen at the Christ, at the cross. When Christ died but he has rebuilt it in his resurrection. And at his ascension, our king received all authority, which he uses to gather 
of his people. If you are in Christ, live, this is the reality you live in. You, you are not, you are not separated anymore outside of God's presence. You are in, we are being made into the temple of God. We are united with Christ in his very presence. But at the same time, we're longing for his second coming, to see him face to face. The old has passed away and the new has come. Jesus truly reigns, but there's more yet to come. And so look with me at verses 28 through 37. Here we see the coming of the king is near, sure, and unknowable. First, verses 28 through 31, we see the coming of the king is near and sure. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus uses again an example of a fig tree to illustrate for the disciples. When you see these things happening, you know that this is the culmination. The culmination of of everything my life, death and resurrection and ascension was about. He says this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Fall of the temple, coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, his contemporaries. You will see these things happen, and they did. They truly did. But these events also point to his future coming and return to earth when God's kingdom is fully on earth as it is in heaven. While he is, so while he is near and his return is sure, What Jesus will say next is that the timing of that return is completely unknowable. Look with me at verses 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or in the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So up to this point, Jesus has talked exclusively about those days. That is the days that the disciples will experience, but also pointed to a future fulfillment. But here, Jesus shifts completely into the future. We know this because he begins to speak of that day or that hour. This is biblical code language for the final day of the coming of the Lord, his second, his second coming. That day of his return, the future fulfillment, all of this will be unknowable. Not even the angels nor the Son, only the Father knows what he's fixed. And the Father decrees it. So Jesus illustrates this point with masters and servants describing a master who has left his house and his servants in charge. They do not know when he will return. 
And so therefore they should stay awake and be ever ready for his return. It ties this final command to be on guard and stay awake ties everything together that we've been seeing in Jesus' answer here to his disciples. Be on guard. Stay awake. This is our gospel application. So we've seen that this prophecy fits the same cycle and pattern of all prophecy. It happened, but it points to a future event. But we also see through all the complex layers, this partial fulfillment, the events, the end of the age, the old covenant end going to a new covenant, the end of all things going to the new heavens and new earth. In the midst of all of this, what is Jesus's primary concern? What does he care about most? Your faith. Watch, be on guard in tribulation and trial, in persecution. Be on guard. Stay awake in your waiting. Don't fall asleep. The end is not yet. We're like the disciples. We get caught up in the details. We want to know when, and we see all the things that are happening. When? uh, What will it look like? How will it take place? And, And Jesus says, Be on your guard. Watch out for your faith. What do these commands mean? I think we are to understand these commands in the way 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12 discusses them. Our time of trial and our time of waiting. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when the heavens and and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? We hasten our king's return by living holy and godly lives. First, we live holy and godly lives and that we are like the servants of this house and are obediently caring about our work, which is what? Making disciples of all nations. We continue expanding the kingdom of God, hastening Christ's return when all nations will be gathered to him in the new heavens and new earth. Second, we live holy and godly lives By fighting sin and doing righteousness. Listen to some of of the ways scripture describes our intervening time here. Hebrews 12.1. We run the race with endurance by casting aside the sin that so easily entangles with eyes fixed on Jesus. Colossians 3.1. We set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 3, 5, we put to death what is earthly in us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Ephesians 5, 20, put off the old self with its deceitful desires and put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Speak truth, be angry and do not sin. Let no corrupting talk come from your mouths, but only what is good for building up. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is guarding. This is staying awake. Jesus commands us to endure and persevere in our faith. In all the chaos, he cares about your faith. Why? 
because he knows. He has walked the same road. He was tempted in every manner we have, and yet without sin. Two ways Jesus knows, and this is our conclusion this morning. First, Jesus knows that the unknown and tribulations and trials are breeding grounds for false gospel and deception that would tempt us to abandon the faith. We see these things and, 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 and wonder, what is it all leading to? What will the end look like? We're like the disciples. When will this happen? What should we do? Be on your guard. That's what you should do. The end is not yet. Don't heed the siren calls of the world. False teachings and false messiahs who would promise a solution to all the trials and tribulations in this life. There's no king, no savior, no political leader, no magic pill, no earthly treasure that will resolve our trials and tribulations and earthly suffering. There is only one who has, can, and will. The king who already sits on his throne. And he will come again and make all things right. And in the meantime, he says, hold fast to me. This leads to the second reason. Jesus cares so much about the outcome of your faith. Jesus knows the joy that awaits you. How? Because he's experiencing it right now. He endured. He persevered to death on a cross for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising its shame. And he says, endure, persevere, because why? It's worth it. It is worth it. It's like Tolkien describes the, the final voyage to the undying lands, Valinor in the West, Lord of the Rings. The great rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back and he beheld white shores, and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise. It's good, but it doesn't top Isaiah. Endure, persevere, because your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Behold Zion, the city of your appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. The trials, tribulations, sickness, torment, depressions, anxiety, sin, death, they will end. They will end. In fact, in the midst of these things, we can truly say it is well with my soul because we know they are serving to increase our anticipation and increase our expectation. For what is to come. And on the other side of this present earthly age. 
when it dissolves away like snow, when our king returns with the new heavens and new earth in tow, what awaits you then? Perfect everlasting life. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. The king in his beauty, arms open wide, welcoming you in with a shout of joy and a beaming smile said, you endured, you persevered, and it's worth it. Come into the joy of your master. Endure. The end is not yet. Behold, the one who testifies to these things says, I am coming soon. This is your hope. Let's pray.